Section 20 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 2, Chapter 5, Austrian Succession. The Emperor Charles VI was unfortunate enough twice to set a general European war on foot, once when he was still a boy, being one of the claimants for the Spanish crown, one of the pair of louts, as Lord Peterborough called them, on whose account the long war of the Spanish succession was fought. The second occasion was when, after his death, the arrangements which he had made with care to prevent a war of Austrian succession proved quite inadequate for that purpose. The emperor's death was unexpected, taking place after a short illness. The death itself is said to have been caused by the emperor's eating a dish of mushrooms at a time when he was already ill. Exactly forty years before, in 1710, the death of a Charles, without male heir, ended the line of the Spanish Habsburg family. Now the death of a Charles ended the other branch, the Austrian Habsburgs, for the emperor left no male heir, but he had two daughters, the elder of whom was the beautiful and famous Maria Theresa. For many years, the whole object of his policy had been to secure that she would succeed him in his hereditary dominions, whilst latterly he had also hoped that her husband would be elected emperor. Charles had therefore prepared an elaborate and formal document, long known as the Pragmatic Sanction, wherein it was decreed that failing male issue Maria Theresa should succeed him. For fifteen years he had done his best to induce the chief powers of Europe to give their assent to the pragmatic sanction, and their formal promises that it should be carried out. No sacrifice seemed too great if this object could be attained. As far as diplomacy could serve, Charles might have died happy, for he had obtained all the guarantees which he had sought. It has been said that he left Maria Theresa an ample collection of parchments. Prince Eugène had warned the emperor that it would have been far wiser to strengthen the army and fill the treasury than to trust in promises however sacred. Frederick the Great cynically remarked that it would have been of more use if Charles had left his daughter an army of 100,000 men. Such was the nature of the legacy which Frederick's father, who also died in this memorable year, 1740, had left to him, and the first use to which he put his admirable drilled army was, in disregard of Prussia's promise to support the pragmatic sanction, to invade the Austrian territory in order to put in force an old and obsolete claim of his family to the province of Silesia. Maria Theresa, who now became, and for a long time remained, one of the chief actors in the drama of European history, was not twenty-four years old at her father's death. She is described as very beautiful, her person formed to wear a crown, with a winning and animated face, a noble figure, and fascinating manners. By nature she was very high-spirited, even proud, never willing to abate a jot from her claims. She was most sincerely desirous of the good of her people, which must be compassed in her way for she was despotic as well as benevolent. Her will was strong, her understanding vigorous. Generous, chivalrous, 
earnest, she had religious principle as the mainspring of her life, but it was oftentimes a religious principle hardly to be distinguished from bigotry. The story goes that Frederick of Prussia wished once to marry her, and those who have the fancy to picture what might have been can see how the whole history of Europe would have been altered by the union of Prussia and Austria. This marriage is said to have been Prince Eugène's strong and earnest wish. But the difference of religion would have been an insurmountable barrier. For no marriage in the world would Maria Theresa, any more than Queen Caroline of England, have changed her faith. Some have thought that an earlier unity of Germany might have been secured with Austria as nucleus. But in those days of balance of power, would the other nations have permitted such a disturbance of it? Another match proposed for Maria Theresa was the electoral prince of Bavaria. When the war of the Polish succession was turning out badly for the emperor, Prince Eugène, in the last great state paper that he wrote, supported the idea of this marriage in order to strengthen the position of Austria in Germany and the German element in Austria. This paper of Eugène's, being exactly contrary to the emperor's wishes for his daughter, seems to have decided the emperor at once to make peace. It is pleasant to add that it was no marriage of policy which Maria Theresa made, but as genuine a love match as any village maidens. Four years before her father's death, after a mutual attachment of at least four years, she had married her cousin Francis, Duke of Lorraine, afterwards Grand Duke of Tuscany. It was this Duke of Lorraine who had been commander-in-chief in the middle year of the disastrous war against the Turks. Amongst the children of Francis and Maria Theresa must be mentioned Joseph, who succeeded Francis as emperor, and the unfortunate Marie Antoinette, Queen of France. The emperor hoped that upon his death his son-in-law would be elected emperor, but as he would not give up the hope of a male heir, he did not like to secure this result by causing Francis to be elected king of the Romans. Ultimately, Charles's wish was gratified. Within three years Francis was elected emperor, but the interval was full of wars and battles, and before him Charles VII, the bold Bavarian, occupied the imperial throne, though on a precarious and uncomfortable tenure. Considering the solemn promises that had been made to the Emperor Charles VI, it is wonderful how soon the pragmatic sanction was set aside. Those who had promised began to make excuses, to quote saving clauses and conditions in their deeds of promise. George II of England alone remained firm in the resolve to keep his kingly word. In his speech to Parliament, he announced that he meant to support Maria Theresa, and Parliament never thought of urging that England had nothing to do with the quarrel. The first to attack the dominions of Austria was Frederick, afterwards called the Great, in his invasion of Silesia. His plan was to seize Silesia first and to treat with Maria Theresa afterwards. She never forgave Frederick for this, and three Silesian wars were the result of his invasion. In the last, the Seven Years' War, Frederick was nearly overwhelmed, but when he emerged from it, he still retained his hold of Silesia. 
But though Frederick was the first, he was not the only enemy raised up against the Archduchess Maria Theresa. The Elector of Bavaria, the King of Spain, and the Elector of Saxony claimed the whole or part of her dominions. The claim of Spain was based on an elaborate genealogy and on a compact made by Charles V when he abdicated his throne. It is very evident, however, that this baseless claim to the whole monarchy was put forward in order that in any division some part might be secured. The Queen of Spain herself confessed that she shared in the war in order that her second son, Don Philip, might gain a morsel of bread. The elector of Saxony, who was also the king of Poland, claimed on the ground that his wife was the eldest daughter of the previous emperor Joseph. But the claim of the elector of Bavaria was considered the most formidable. Charles Albert was the son of the elector who was defeated at Blenheim, and of Kunigunda, daughter of the famous John Sobajewski, king of Poland. He himself had married the younger daughter of the previous emperor Joseph. It is true that if there was any Salic law forbidding a female to succeed, it would operate not only against Maria Theresa, but against all the claimants, for it would seem just that if a female cannot inherit, she should not be able to transmit a claim. For three hundred years of the House of Austria there had been no claim through a female. Yet it is manifest that the rules of succession in Austria must have been peculiar, for in England the daughters of Joseph would have succeeded before Charles himself the late emperor. This must have been the reason why Charles took so much trouble about the pragmatic sanction. His daughter's claim was now clearly recognizable. He therefore did his utmost to secure promises that it would be recognized. The elector of Bavaria claimed that by the will of a former emperor, Ferdinand I, females were excluded, but when the original will at Vienna was examined, the word male on which he relied was not found. The important question was, what side would France take? When Frederick started for Silesia, he is reported to have said to the French ambassador, I believe I am going to play your game, that is, French hostility to Austria. If the aces fall to me, we will share the proceeds. Yet on France's part there was a slight hesitation. Cardinal Fleury, the old chief minister, was in favor of accepting the pragmatic sanction. Like Walpole, he was a peace minister. Like Walpole, he was at this time forced into war. Like Walpole, he soon retired and did not live long. Marshal Belleisle was at the head of a war party, chiefly consisting of young nobles who desired to seize the opportunity to dismember France's old enemy, Austria. This Count Belleisle, who was the chief adviser of the French king in opposition to the policy of Fleury, was a notable man. He had conceived very definite plans with respect to Germany, such as were in accordance with the traditional lines of French ambition, but not of a kind to make Germans love his memory. His idea was de vide et impera, keep Germany as disunited as possible, in order that France might prevail over her. A balance of power should be maintained, but in Germany, not in Europe. 
French interference in the Thirty Years' War had helped the disunion of Germany and to mark more strongly the multiplicity of her independent little states. Belleisle had a fancy for four German kingdoms of something like equal power, Austria, Prussia, Saxony, and Bavaria. As Austria had hitherto been much more powerful than the others, the influence of France was to be thrown into the scale with the enemies of Austria, and on the spoils of Austria the other three kingdoms were to grow fat. Thus Frederick's seizure of Silesia would be supported by France. Count Belleisle obtained from the king the appointment of ambassador extraordinary to the courts of Germany, and proceeded to make a kind of semi-royal progress from one court to another. He had thirty young French lords in his suite, and no less than one hundred and ten servants in livery. To add to his importance, the king made him a marshal of France. One of the first things to be done was to defeat the election of Maria Theresa's husband as emperor. Belleisle conducted negotiations which ultimately led to the election of Charles Albert, Duke and Elector of Bavaria. He took the title of Charles VII. The full design of Austria's enemies was to reduce Maria Theresa to Hungary, Lower Austria, and the Austrian Netherlands, and to share the rest of her dominions amongst the various claimants. A French historian claims that this conduct on the part of France was too generous, because she was to keep no portion of the shared dominions for herself, as if the weakening of her ancient enemy was not reward enough for her. An alliance to this effect was made between France, Bavaria, and Spain by the Treaty of Nymphenburg. It was joined later by Saxony, and later still by Frederick of Prussia. France, however, did not declare war. Her cue was to appear only as Bavaria's ally, and her first act was to hold George II in check by marching an army upon Hanover. George, who was just preparing to take the field, agreed by the Treaty of Hanover to neutrality for a year, on condition that there should be no French invasion of the Netherlands. The second act of France was to send an army toward Upper Austria. On crossing the frontier of their country, the French soldiers put on white and blue cockades, the badge of Bavaria, as if they were Bavarian soldiers. This Franco-Bavarian army soon seized the whole of Upper Austria, and the Elector of Bavaria was proclaimed at Linz, the capital of Upper Austria, hereditary Grand Duke. From Linz the victors might easily have marched on Vienna. Frederick indeed advised that they should, but for some reason the Elector preferred to turn aside against Bohemia. The general belief is that the French did not wish to make him too strong. The capture of Prague soon followed, and in that capital in November the elector was crowned King of Bohemia. On June 25, 1741, Maria Theresa was crowned at Pressburg, Queen of Hungary. This was her highest title until in after years her husband was elected emperor. Then she was known as the Empress Queen. The English ambassador and eyewitness gave the following description of the scene. The queen was all charm. She rode gallantly up the royal mount, and defied the four corners of the world with drawn saber, in a manner to show she had no occasion for that weapon to conquer all who saw her. 
the antiquated crown received new graces from her head, and the old tattered robe of St. Stephen became her as well as her own rich habit, if diamonds, pearls, and all sorts of precious stones can be called clothes. Even in June, Maria Theresa must have needed all her high spirit to make this defiance. In the next three months her fortunes were fast ebbing, till, at what seemed the lowest ebb, she determined to make a great effort to rouse the loyalty of her Hungarian subjects. In September she made pathetic and earnest appeals to the Diet, evoking their enthusiasm. The scene has been somewhat touched up by later writers, especially by Voltaire. The Queen is usually represented as carrying her little baby in her arms, making a Latin speech to the effect that she was forsaken by all, and invoking their ancient Hungarian valor to save her. The story runs that the members of the Diet sprang to their feet, drew their sabers, and shouted, Moriamor pro rege nostro Maria Theresia. The evidence, however, for the degree of excitement which made her a king instead of a queen is not very strong. But there is no doubt whatever of the great enthusiasm with which she was received. The House of Austria had not hitherto made much of their Hungarian dominions, and the Hungarians were especially pleased to be called upon for assistance. They secured advantages also. The Queen pledged herself to restore to them their ancient constitution, and a large Hungarian army was soon ready to defend right loyally the beautiful young Queen. The Diet voted in insurrectio, or general rising of the whole country in arms. These Hungarians were no ordinary soldiers, but enjoyed a special reputation for ferocity. Charles Albert had proceeded from Prague to Frankfurt, where the Diet of the Empire had been summoned, and influenced by France, it elected him emperor with the title of Charles Seventh, January 24, 1742. On February 12th he was crowned. The poor man is himself described by one who was present as very ill, dying of gout and gravel. But the most famous description of him occurs in Johnson's Vanity of Human Wishes, which was published within five years of his death. The bold Bavarian, in a luckless hour, tries the dread summits of Caesarian power. With unexpected legions, bursts away, and sees defenseless realms receive his sway. Short sway, fair Austria spreads her mournful charms, the queen, the beauty, sets the world in arms. From hill to hill the beacon's rousing blaze spreads wide the hope of plunder and of praise. The fierce Croatian and the wild hussar, with all the sons of ravage, crowd the war. The baffled prince, in honor's flattering bloom of hasty greatness, finds the fatal doom. His foe's derision and his subjects blame, and steals to death from anguish and from shame. It is quite with a right instinct that history has attached importance to the scene or scenes in the Diet of Pressburg. Here was the turning point in the fortune of fair Austria. The change from September to the following February was indeed complete. In September, the elector of Bavaria, with the army that was at least nominally his, took Upper Austria, and in October, Bohemia. 
Maria Theresa's fortunes seemed at the lowest pitch. In October she appealed to her Hungarians. The English sent her large subsidies and money, and Frederick, by a private convention, offered her a break in the war against him. This gave her for a while a breathing space, and after a little further struggle the First Silesian War ended in the Peace of Breslau. Frederick had gained Silesia. The French were very angry that he had made peace. The general result was that the French were hard-pressed in Bohemia, whilst Maria Theresa's troops advanced into Austria, and by a curious coincidence regained Linz, the capital of Upper Austria, on the very day that Charles Albert was elected emperor. Then following up their victory they took Munich, the capital of his own dominions, on the very day that he was crowned, so that Charles VII was a Lackland emperor as soon as ever he was emperor at all. The French had gone to Prague in very victorious fashion, but now that the Austrian cause was gaining, the recapture of Upper Austria cut the French off from Bavaria. It was so diminished in numbers and in such sore need of reinforcements that the Austrians were able to besiege it in this very town of Prague. A second army was sent by France, which was nicknamed the Army of Redemption, but it was not able to fight its way as far as Prague. The utmost that it could accomplish was to seize the town of Eger on the Bohemian frontier, and by holding it to secure a line of retreat for Belial and his army toward the Mind Valley. Belial determined to make a sortie from Prague and convey his troops as quickly as possible to Eger. The December weather was most bitter. Christmas Day fell in the middle of the retreat. There was a hard frost, and snow lay on the ground, so that this retreat has been compared to the famous retreat from Moscow. The distance was only a hundred miles, but an enormous proportion of the men fell victims to the hardships of the march. The invalids and wounded had been left under a general at Prague. When summoned to surrender at discretion, he made reply, Tell your general that unless he grants me the honors of war, I shall set fire to the four corners of Prague and bury myself in its ruins. His heroism met with its fitting reward. Prague once cleared of its wrongful occupants, Maria Theresa quickly seized the opportunity to be crowned. A second coronation scene took place in Prague, May 12, 1743. On her father's death, she was proclaimed in Vienna, and she had now been crowned Queen of Hungary at Pressburg and Queen of Bohemia at Prague. She did her best to clear all rebellion out of Bohemia, and meanwhile her armies invaded Bavaria, very legitimately carrying the war into the country of the prince whose actions brought it on. He, poor man, was little more than a fugitive on the face of the earth. By September he gave up the struggle completely, and for the remaining sixteen months of his life the titular emperor lived at Frankfurt entirely reft of power. Parallel with the war in Germany, there was war also going on in Italy. Spanish troops had been landed in Italy under Don Philip, the second son of the Queen of Spain. The object of this force was to attack Milan as part of the Austrian possessions, and it was thought that Don Philip's elder brother Charles, King of Naples, would render assistance. But the Kingdom of Naples, or of the Two Sicilies, as it was often called, was forced into neutrality by an English fleet which appeared in the Bay of Naples 
and threatened to bombard the city if the king did not sign a treaty of neutrality. Deprived of this expected assistance, Don Philip was not able to do much. End of section 20